Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Now, uh, as you know, uh, one of the things that we've done this week is uh, we've moved. We've moved home. Uh, which is one of the most stressful experiences of my life. But one of the best things about moving is the great call. And you would know what that is. And I'm, I'm what you would call a minimalist enthusiast, but I haven't yet mastered the art of chucking everything out that doesn't spark joy. Don't get, me tw- don't get it twisted. I am a disciple of Marie Kondo, but I've still, I've still got my training wheels on here. Uh, but we've moved, and it's so cathartic to just get rid of stuff. I mean, stuff that you know you should have gotten rid of years ago. Uh, I know I have to send an apology apology letter to the council. Uh, Whoever was the council cleanup persons for that day uh, had their work cut out for them. But I was so surprised at the clothes that I held on to, the clothes that I held on to for so long that just needed to go to Salvos. I mean, there were a couple things that were quite sentimental for me, like my high school jersey that still fit, which is great. That's why I got it oversized when I was in high school. That's just the way I used to dress. Uh, but, and another shirt, I remember that a friend who's passed and he's gone on with the Lord, a shirt he bought me, I kept, I held on to that as well. But clothes, whether we realize it or not, are important. They're, they're very important. Now, while this sermon is not a sermon on a theology of clothes, uh, the Bible does have a story about clothes. Uh, and you remember that in Genesis 1 and 2, Our parents were what? They were naked and they were unashamed. And it wasn't until the day after they had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they realized and they went all Calvin Klein and sewed some fig leaves together and put them on to cover themselves. And God later on, he realized that's a poor effort. And so what God does after he he exiles them from the Garden of Eden, he actually makes them garments of clothing. And then fashion was born. The global apparel market is on the crazy rise. It's projected to grow from about 100, uh, sorry, 1.5 trillion dollars, which is an astronomical amount. We think, oh, we get millions. We can almost understand billions, but trillions, 1.5 trillion dollars to 2.25 trillion dollars in the U.S. by the year 2025. The demand for clothing and shoes is astronomical. So if we can say anything about clothing, it's this, that clothing is incredibly important for people. It's become one of the primary ways that we can express ourselves. And more than just clothing expressing ourselves outwardly, what we have found is that our clothing can actually shape our internal attitudes and dispositions. Simply put, what we wear has the power to change us. In an article in 2019 uh, called The Power of Clothes, it closes like this. There are many different research studies on this topic about clothing, but one thing is clear. There is a direct link between our moods and emotions and what we choose to wear. This impacts significantly on our subsequent behavior, our confidence, and our social interactions. As image consultant Julie Zane says, I encourage my clients to dress as if they feel good. That impacts on their self-esteem and helps to shift them from a negative to a positive perspective. And that is the power of fashion. And on this point, the fashion industry understands our humanity sometimes better than what we do. 
better than how we interpret Paul because this is exactly what Paul's going to be saying here today. Paul's going to invite us to out, out of our allegiance to Jesus, out of our faith in Jesus, to put him on like we would put a pair of shoes on, like we would put a pair of pants on, like we would dress ourselves in the morning. Paul is saying today we are invited to take off our old humanity and we are invited to put on Christ and thereby fulfilling our true, our true humanity. That's the invitation in the text today. How we move through the world. Our behavior is not an isolated event. It, is, it comes out of who we believe we are, our identity. Who we are always gives shape to what we do. And what we begin to realize is that also what we do begins to bring shape to us. The things we do actually end up doing something to us. And so the way that Paul tells us to change is by telling us this. Be who you already are in Christ. You have experienced the apocalypse. Now I want to remind us that the apocalypse isn't talking about the end of the world. That's not what that word means. When we think apocalypse, we think X-Men apocalypse, or we think this apocalyptic movie that talks about the end of the world. The word apocalypse simply means unveiling, uncovering. That's literally what the word means. And so when we speak about the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, what we're saying is the unveiling of Christ, of who he is. And Paul is saying, you have woken up to who Jesus really is. You have been redeemed. You have been sealed with the Spirit. That is who you are now. And because that is who you already are, now become that, he says. Become what you already are. And this, this reminder, this call to live out the implications of the gospel was so necessary for the Ephesians because they were prone to live out of patterns shaped by the old humanity. We need to understand that the Ephesians were prone to live out of patterns shaped by their former selves, by their old humanity. Read it again here with me from verse 17. It says this, that now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and they have given themselves up to sensuality. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And Paul does something really interesting here. Because if you would remember, and, and you probably don't, uh, but if you remember all the previous sermons that we've gone through, Paul is very happy to call them Gentiles. Verse, uh, chapter 2, 11 and 3, 1, he says, you Gentiles. He says, I'm in, I'm in prison for the Gentiles. And so Paul's doing something really interesting here. He says this, basically, okay, you Gentiles, the ones that I'm in prison for, the people who were once far off but now have been brought near, you Gentiles, he says, don't be Gentiles. You've been given, you know, you'd be given some grace if you think Paul is a little schizophrenic here. It's like, hold on, Paul, you... Man, we just read. I mean, these things were designed to be read in one sitting where people were, the whole church would get together and like, you, five minutes ago, like you called us Gentiles and now you're telling us not to be Gentiles. But Paul is reminding them that the truest thing about them is no longer their non-Jewishness. 
right? To be a Gentile was to be a non-Jew. And Paul's reminding them that reality that you're not a Jew, per, like you're not a Jewish person, your ethnicity, your religiosity, that is no longer the truest thing about you. He reminds them that now that they have experienced the apocalypse that is larger than life, there's, there's this larger category now that they belong to. Paul is creating this new category, this new identity category. Now, identity categories are labels that we use to say this. This is who I am. Some of the most common identity categories are gender categories that we use to label ourselves, or ethnic categories, or socioeconomic categories like rich, poor, so on. And these categories, they do a couple things. The first thing is they shape our identity. Who we say we are shapes our identity. The fact that I'm a Puerto Rican male, born in Brooklyn, migrated to Australia 15 years ago, that, that shapes me in certain ways that you're not shaped in because that's not your experience. And so identity categories, they shape our identity. They, they answer the question who we are. But they also influence our behavior, what we do. And thirdly, they give us a sense of they give us a sense of coherence and community. It gives us a sense of uh, a story, of meaning, of belonging. That's what these identity markers do. We use these categories to say, this is who I am. And once we've categorized ourselves, then we make decisions that flow out of that identity. But this is the problem. There's a problem here. The problem is the apocalypse of the Messiah. The, the problem is the apocalypse of Jesus. The, this apocalypse, this unveiling of this new community that no longer uses these identity categories to, uh, uh, to put ourselves up against one another. And Paul will soon call this a new humanity. But now that Christ has been revealed, there is a new and larger category that we belong to. And this new and larger category doesn't erase all the other categories, but it neutralizes them of the power to create walls against one another. And this is the new category. Old humanity and new humanity. And this is where Paul puts everyone. This is the largest category that we can think of over socioeconomic, ethnic, religious. This is the largest category now that we can belong to. We are either living according to our old self, our old humanity, or our new humanity. And our Ephesian brothers and sisters were prone to living as if they belonged to the ways that shaped their old humanity. They were prone to live out patterns shaped by the value systems of the old humanity. And Paul needed to remind them of who they truly were in order that they would respond to the gospel well. And this is why it's so important to understand that Paul is not calling them to become something they are not. Paul is calling them to be what they already are. And this process is often long and arduous and two steps forward and one step back. But this process calls us to live differently, not because we want to impress anyone or, or just have a self-improvement project, but because we are fundamentally different because we no longer belong to the old humanity. We are not to walk, live a life marked by the same things that mark these quote-unquote Gentiles. Futility of mind. And the word Paul uses here is, is more, 
is more like mindsets. He's not calling them dumb. That's, that's clearly true that you don't have to be a Christian to be intelligent. In fact, we've all had experiences where that could be the adverse, right? Uh, and, and the true is the same in the world. You, you, you don't have to have the Holy Spirit to be intelligent. He's not, he's not saying uh, that you're dumb if you're not a Christian. What he's saying is that there is a futility, that there is a frustration in the mind with what maybe our parents or our grandparents would have called the things of God. They don't understand the deep things of God, and they don't simply work out because they don't align with reality. He also says they're darkened in their understanding. And again, he's not saying that they are stupid. He's saying you, you don't understand the deepest realities of the world, this apocalypse of Jesus, of who really is in charge. And they're greedy, he says, to, to practice every kind of impurity. And we may be hearing this, and, and sirens of morality, police may be going off. You know, the folks who can sense happiness a mile away and come with a wet blanket just to make sure you're not having too much fun. That's what you may be hearing when you hear this. And I can un absolutely understand why you would think that if you haven't had the apocalypse of Jesus. If you haven't understood the things that he has done for us. And if you don't consider yourself a Christian here today, I'm not calling you to change your behavior. That has to come out so clearly. I am not calling you to change your behavior as if you can anyway. But once you have had this apocalypse of Jesus by grace, once you see him for who he is, you begin to see the ways that you've tried to secure your joy and your happiness apart from him. And that's actually led to futility, to frustration, to, to a disjointed life, to, in fact, to unhappiness, to low-level anxiety, in a word, to death. And so... The call is not to walk according to your former way of life. That, that's not a call to kill joy, but to find true and deep and lasting joy in a way that doesn't destroy us. Because it's a thing, right? It's not just the Ephesians that are prone to walking according to the old pattern of living. So am I. So are we. We too can default to old ways of thinking and being that are anti-gospel. Ways of being that are anti-good news. Ways of operating and reacting that make sense if Jesus was still in the grave. It's not just the Ephesian Christians. This is just as much a modern problem in our world, in our church, as it is in theirs. You know, this is our experience, isn't it? If, if you consider yourself a Christian here today, let me ask you a question. Do you ever do anything you don't want to do? Very simple question. Do you ever, I'm telling you ever, do you ever say anything that you just wish, you wish, like you had Dr. Strange's time stone and you're able to just like do this and turn back the clock and swallow your words back and not hurt that person? Have you ever experienced, or is it just me? Like we've all experienced situations where you thought, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I, I shouldn't have done that. Even now. Some of us feel stuck in patterns of being and thinking that may frustrate us. The way that we react to our kids or our coworkers or that frustrating person that you're sitting next to that you kind of don't want to look at right now because that would be a little bit awkward. And what generally is our solution to, to these things, right? Everyone's looking at each other like, no, nah, I like you. I actually, you, don't, you don't bother me at all. 
Our, solu- our solution is generally this, right? We need to try harder. We need to try harder. I need to simply think differently. I need to have more faith, more willpower, more know-how. But all of that fails to address the deep-seated and hardwired realities that we have as embodied human beings. And this often begins when we think about who we are as, like what constitutes our reality, like who are we as humans? The word there is, is you may have heard it, is anthropology. Anthropology basically is just who we are as humans. What, what, what is our makeup? And if we get our makeup wrong, we will often get the ways that we are called to grow wrong. And so often in our culture, the way we think about ourselves, our anthropology is that Basically, we're, we're brains on a stick, James K. Smith says. We, we're thinking things. And so if I, if I simply just change what I think, then naturally I should change the way I behave. But we all experience this gap where we say, I know what the right thing to do is. I just don't. Maybe it is just me. But we all have gaps in our lives where we say, I should do this. Or I shouldn't do this, and yet we do or don't. We do the adverse. We all experience this gap between what we know and what we do. The idea that every bad action has this invisible string that if we pull on that string, it will eventually lead to a bad belief, I'm not sure, holds weight to my experience or yours. We're much more complicated than that. We may believe in the right things and still act in very wrong ways. The reality is that we can be saved by Christ and still be subject to mindsets, ways of being and acting that reflect our fallen, old humanity. And so the Holy Spirit's charge to you today, those who are sitting under the voice of this preaching this afternoon, is this, that this is not who you are anymore. Become who you are in Christ to grow up. The old way must go. But how? We come back to the text here in verse 20. Paul says this, But that is not the way you learned Christ, Messiah, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says, but that is not the way you learned Messiah. And I love Paul so much. I love the way he words things or the way he doesn't word word things. It's interesting what he doesn't say here. This is what he doesn't say. But that is not the way you learned Christianity. He doesn't say, but that is not the way you learned about the Messiah. He doesn't say, but come on, guys, you learned a new philosophy, a new way of thinking. No, and those things aren't bad in and of themselves. They're not untrue. But what he says is you learned a person. You learned Christ. You learned Messiah. And we often get tripped up with this word learn because we hear learn and we think lecture hall. But learn here, this word is the same word that we get disciple from, mathetes. Disciple, learner. And this word has much more to do with the shop than it does with the classroom. This has much more to do to be in, 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 a, in TAFE rather than university. This has much more to do with being at a trade school rather than the ivory towers. This is hands-on work. 
You've learned Christ. You have been habituated to Christ. You have taken on his habits. And so Paul's not saying you learn things about Christ. He's saying you, you learned a person. A person. A real person. And this is where he introduces these larger-than-life categories that we mentioned earlier. It'll be on the screen for us where, where we think about old humanity and new humanity. In our translation, we have old self and new self. I'm not sure what you have. Maybe if you brought your Bible, NIV or uh, uh, New American. I'm not sure what you have there. But this word self often also trips us up because it, it makes us think about the individual self. That, that we have been created into a new person. But Paul here is using the word for humanity. That you have become a new human being. A different kind of thing altogether. He tells the Ephesians to take off their old humanity. That that identity is no longer yours. You don't belong to the realm of decay and sin and death. You are now children of light, so act like it. And our mindsets, our dispositions, our practices are to be renewed now as we put on our new humanity, a new way to be human. And what does that look like? And Paul takes us back to Genesis 1, the original blueprint. He says that it is to look like in the likeness of God. We're to be walking, talking, living, breathing statues of Yahweh. We're to be his image bearers. We're to partner with him in seeing all of the beauty. Listen to this. We're to partner with God in seeing all of the beauty, all of the potential of this world to be unfurled. And as new humans recreated in the likeness of God found in Christ, we can finally be what we were always created to be. And as apprentices of Jesus, we are then invited to take off the old humanity and put on the new. And Paul outlines a series of commands here that if we hear them in isolation from your identity, it feels like morality. But this is saying, no, 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 no. Because you are fundamentally different, because God has taken you from the realm of death and put you into the realm of life, let me show you now what it looks like to behave as if Jesus is truly ruling and reigning. And he says this in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk Come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption, and let all bitterness, all wrath, all anger, all clamor, all slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Remember, these are not isolated from the reality that now in Christ we are part of a new humanity as a gift. So Paul, for the rest of the letter, is going to draw us a pretty detailed picture of what it looks like to live as new humans. But in these next few verses, he's going to compare some of the characteristics of the old humanity and the new humanity. And the first thing is, uh, uh, and it will be up here, it's, it's telling lies. That the old humanity is 
shaped, it is marked by lies, by us telling each other lies. And he says, hold on, now we are to speak truth. And why? Because we actually belong to one another. We are actually one. Remember, there were seven things last week that he mentions that why we are one, why we are together, this unity that we have. He says this, uh, that we have uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the Father of all who is over all and in all. One spirit, one body. We are one. Like in Christ, you don't get to choose your brothers and sisters. That's the frustrating part. I would love to do that. I'd love, you know, like I choose you, you know. Like, but we don't get to choose who we're with. Like, you get to choose your church and you kind of, but even then, like, we're stuck, right, with the people that God rescues. And they're stuck with me. And they're probably thinking the worst things of me, right? But that's, that's just what it is. We, we are one now. And so we don't tell lies to one another. We, we speak truth. We also don't have this unrighteous and bitter anger. Rather, we are marked by righteous anger. And it's interesting. I love what he says here. Not to give an opportunity to the devil. Whenever we think about spiritual warfare, I've been shaped by movies like The Exorcist and, you know, and, and kind of poltergeist kind of movies. Uh, but when we think about how the devil works, oftentimes, and you see this in Scripture, you see Paul making these connections, it's usually when there's disunity between you and I. It has to do with our relationships. It has to do with the ways that we do not seek to maintain our unity. Not to have unrighteous and bitter anger, therefore not allowing the devil to have a foothold. We're also not to be marked by stealing, but marked by generosity. In the old humanity, uh, that was marked by rancid speech, rotten speech. And this is not just talking about curse words, you know, whatever cultural curse words we may have. This is much bigger than this. This is saying your speech is rancid, rotten, bad speech. Rather, our speech shouldn't be rotten, but it should be a gift. I'm not sure if you've ever smelled anything that was rancid, like, like really rancid. Like when you have kids who don't take out their lunch boxes from their bags, and it's the weekend or the school holidays, and you're ready to pack their bags two weeks later. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but this is the kind of speech, when you open that up, that's the kind of speech. Paul says that that's not to be found here. Our speech should be gifts to one another. We shouldn't be marked by bitterness or wrath, unrighteous anger, clamor, slander. Rather, imagine if we were a community of kindness and we were marked by tenderheartedness. That we're soft with the pain of one another. That we're forgiving of one another. It's interesting that we think often that church should be perfect or we shouldn't. Like the reason why Paul's writing this is because that was a struggle. And to think that we also will not struggle as a church is, is to live in non-reality. We need this. We need to be reminded that as people in the kingdom of God, as new humans, this is the kind of life we are called to. This is the kind of life that the world desperately needs. So Paul here, and there is no question that to live in such a way that reflects the old humanity is not to be your true self. You're betraying yourself. 
It's not to be your, your, your new self, your new humanity. And this call for us to put away our old humanity and its practices and put on the new ways of Christ, that we are a truth-telling community in a world of spin. We are a community that does not do anger in the same way as the world. We, we seek to not sin in our anger, but we seek to resolve our issues with one another quickly. We seek to be a generous community. We use our speech to build up, not to tear down, even on social media. Maybe especially today on social media, where we think there's this buffer where our character has no bearing on our online presence. We use speech to build one another up, not to tear them down. We're a community marked by kindness, soft hearts, forgiving quickly and justly. Now, I don't, I don't know if I need to convince you to want to be that. Like, I want to be that. I don't want to just talk about it from up here. I want to be that deeply. I want us to be that. So the question is, that's the invitation. That's the invitation. And what a beautiful picture of what it means to be a human in a world that can be simply exhausting. How do we then RSVP? How do we answer this invitation? How do we respond to the invitation to put on our new humanity? How do we become the kind of people that not only want to be holy, but act in accord with our new humanity? How does our desire for holiness become a present reality? That's the question. Because many of us are sitting here thinking, well, to, to be human is to err. There's no way I can be holy. Have you even, like, just, if, if our thoughts for the past 24 hours were on these screens, I'm moving back to America. You, I don't know where you guys are going to South America, Argentina, to be lost. I don't know where you're going, right? But that's, 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 that's all of us. We think, of course not. How, how can I? Like, how, how can I be used for noble purposes for the Lord? First, we need this. We need to unlearn the narratives about ourselves that we have acquired. We have to believe that holiness is possible. That, that's the first step. To simply believe that we can change and mimic the character of Christ. That's the very first thing. We have to actually even just believe that it's possible. It's interesting. What does Paul call Christians throughout his letters. 40 times, I mean, pop quiz, 40 times, he calls them saints. Hagios, saints. I mean, you're talking about the Corinthian Christians. Like, have you read that letter? Like, there's a guy who's sleeping with his mother-in-law and people getting drunk at communion. And you know what he calls them? Saints. Saints. He's not excusing their behavior. You can go ahead and read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But he calls them saints. He calls them by their truest and deepest nature. You are a saint. In Christ, you are hagios. You are a saint. Whether you realize it or not, whether you feel good enough about yourself or not, that is your new reality. Forty times, nine times in the book of Ephesians, he calls them saints. Saint. Paul is trying to get something very, very, very important across. That you right now, in 
Christ. If you've made a profession of faith and you have been called out of darkness and into light, you are a holy one. You have been set aside for his noble purposes. And it does not mean that you don't struggle with compulsions and addictions. It doesn't mean that you will clean up your act overnight. It does not mean that you are perfect. It doesn't mean that you won't slip up. It doesn't even mean you won't try to run away from God when things get hard. Let me tell you what it does mean, though, that you are holy, that you are saint, that in God's eyes, he calls you saint. That's what that means. And sainthood is messy. We we, we think about it as really clean. Sainthood is messy. And we need to grow up into it and unlearn the things that we've learned about it, that it's about perfection. It's about pursuing the one who is perfect and in that becoming perfect. Paul calls us to become what we already are. And so first we need to unlearn the unhealthy black and white narratives that we've learned about what it means to grow up into Christ and understand that growth in Christ's likeness is possible. The second thing we need is we need a vision for this life. What, is it, what does it actually look like? What does this life look like? If it, it, It's not... It's not our, I'm convinced, it's not our souls, first and foremost, that need to be saved, but it's our imaginations. We need renewed imaginations to have a vision for what it means to be new humans. This is why immersing ourselves in the world of Scripture is so important, because as we read, we enter into this new world, and this new world then enters into us and begins to shape not only our thoughts, but our imaginations. And we do this by regularly giving ourselves over to scripture reading and and even memorizing it. If we're going to grow up into everything God has for us, we need a vision for what this life actually looks like. A vision that is marked by patience. A life that is marked by patience and grace and truth-telling. A life that is marked by gentleness. But third, we need to want to want it. We need intentionality. We need to at least want to want. And some of us here are on whole different spectrums of of where we are here. Some of us may not even want it. Some of us know that you don't want it, but you want to want it. And that's enough. And it's this simple question. Do you want to be holy as God is holy? Very simple question. Is holiness and goodness and otherness, being like God, something that you want? Do you want to be formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others? Have you ever asked yourself the question? Now, I'm not asking you, do you think you should want to be? Of course, we know the answer. Of course. It's a Sunday school answer. Yes, of course, I should want to. That's not the question I'm asking. I'm saying, do you actually want to? In your pursuit of your life, do you want to be like Jesus. Even with the understanding that we're not going to be perfect on this side of the return of Christ, do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to live in perfect obedience to the Father? I'm not up here telling you that we can attain perfection this side of the eschaton. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this. Do you want to? Do you want to obey Is it your intention that when you pick up scripture, that your disposition is what I read, I will do? Is is that our posture? And so, 
We need to unlearn the negative scripts about ourselves. We need to begin to see ourselves as God sees us as holy ones, that it's possible to be godly. But we also need a vision for what this kingdom life looks like. And we also need a desire for wholeness and for holiness. We need intention. But new scripts, a great vision, and honest intentions don't get us very far. The fourth thing we need are means. Means are the vehicles that put us in the position to allow God, the Holy Spirit, to change us. Means are the practices that we take up as a community to train ourselves in godliness, as Paul tells Timothy. We need to do something. We need to conscript our physical bodies into practice that are going to give us new habits. And we begin this journey, as we begin this journey, we find uh, uh, saying no to this or yes to that is difficult. But with training, we slowly but surely become the kind of people that find it more natural. We become habituated to the kingdom of God to live according to our new humanity. And this takes time. This takes time. In an age of the microwave and the bullet train and whatever else we have to get from point A to point B really, really quickly, uh, we get frustrated with ourselves. But this takes time. And it takes a community of people to help us along the way. We can't do this alone. Change must come when we take on practices together in our effort to grow into everything that God has for us, a community of hope and love and generosity. A community that doesn't think about its own needs only, but gives of itself for the sake of others. A community that seeks to serve others rather than being served. A community that is tender-hearted toward one another. A community that is a balm for the weary. Imagine this. Imagine the next time you are dead tired and disappointed that you say, I'm so tired, I can't even go to church. Imagine if the narrative, if we become the kind of people where we say, I am so tired, I need to go. That this is a balm for my soul. That I miss these people. Do you want to be a part of community? A family that gives itself over to this vision. And this is the invitation. To take off our old humanity and put on Christ thereby fulfilling our true humanity. And I want to lead us now into a time, something we don't do every week. I want to lead us now into a time of corporate and personal repentance. Now, repentance is not a dirty religious word. I know many of you have experienced that word in that way, with the signs repent or go to hell. Right? We all know about Westboro. That's okay, fair enough. That is not what the word repentance means. Repentance is not a guilt-inducing practice. Repentance is coming before God and sometimes others and confessing the ways that we have given ourselves over to our old humanity. Repentance, remember, remember in the scriptures that it's God's what? What leads us to repentance? It's not God's wrath. It's not God's anger. And it's not our guilt or shame that leads us to repentance. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That's what leads us to repentance. Repentance is the fruit of the kindness of God. And it's a way for us to shift again our basic orientation to the world. It is to say again and again and again, yes to our new humanity and no to our old. When we repent, we're taking off our old humanity and putting on our new humanity. So I wanna give us some space today, this afternoon, 
to grieve, to mourn. I want to lead us in a time of silence as well as we uh, uh, do business with God in, in and of ourselves. So I, I want to read to you here a small prayer um, that can lead us in, in this way. And this is a prayer for those who have not done great things for God. And I, if you can take some of these words for yourselves, uh, uh, that will be great. And we'll have a time for silence as well. This is the prayer. How many times, how many times have I been told, O Christ, by well-meaning people, that it is my destiny and my charge to go out into the world and do great things for you? How many times in response have I prayed earnestly, asking you that you would bring such things to pass, that you would use me mightily for the work of your kingdom? How many times have I then waited expectantly and waited and waited for that great thing, whatever it may be, to be made obvious? How many times have I felt then the gradual settling weight of disillusionment, of confusion, of disappointment? In the confused afterglow of those anticipations, I'm faced again with the unglamorous reality of my own life, of my ongoing failures simply to love well to love well the people around me, of my ever-present struggle, even desire, even to desire to pursue a path of righteousness and obedience in my own small daily choices and habits. I'm faced again with the litany of tired old temptations. I'm faced again with the same litany of tired old temptations towing their attendant shames. And in such times, I am left, O oh Lord, wondering if I have somehow missed your call completely and whether I might just as well abandon this pilgrimage entirely. For I fear that you must see me as I see myself, unfit for any service to you or to your people or to this world. So tell me, God, where is the disconnect between that, rife, that life rife with breathtaking demonstrations of your power that I'm told I should be the hallmark of the walk with you? Where is this disconnect between those fantastic notions and the reality of my actual life, which is filled with petty frustrations, mundane responsibilities, and constant reminders of my own failure to wear well the name of Christ? I'm going to give us a moment of silence here before I continue reading. Forgive us, Lord, for doing the things that we uh, should not do, 
and for leaving undone the things that we should do. We confess this publicly to you. We confess our failures. We confess our sin. We confess the ways that we can so often give ourselves to our old humanity. But that is not the way that we have learned Messiah. So we pray now, out of this prayer of repentance, that you would console us that you would revive us, that you would give us a fresh vision for what it means to follow you. And let this season, this, this short time of repentance be the fruit of righteousness. That we would walk renewed knowing, Lord, that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. Help us to believe again that this is possible that you are actually calling us to be different, that you are actually calling us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, to, to, to fulfill our humanity. To be, to be perfect, is to be what we were created to be. We can't do this without you. This is not enough, what we try to do. Our trying is never enough. It leads to futility, to frustration. And so, Lord, now before you, we come as we are. And yet you call us holy. What a mystery in the universe that you would look at us. And if we have any self-awareness, that you would look at us and call us holy. And so may repentance, may this continual turning about to come back to you, may it mark our lives. May we never think that we have gone too far. May we never think that we have strayed too long. May we never think that we have sinned too much, for your grace is sufficient. Every time we may turn from you is another opportunity to come back to you. And so we repent and we rejoice over this word that we are forgiven in Christ. And for us who've been now maybe confessing sin to the Lord in private, I, I, I want to offer a word to you, a word that's often missing when we just privately confess our sin to God. But we're, we're, we're auditory animals. We, we, we need to listen. We need to hear things. And, and so I, in the name of Christ, you need to understand this one thing, that you are forgiven. That there is nothing that God is holding over your head. And every sin was nailed to the cross and is now on the floor dead powerless and even the power of sin no longer has dominion over you and so understand this this one central reality that you are forgiven and that you are called to live out of your new humanity